welcome to Direction Correct, a people podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Mir Testantic, Director of Product Insights at Orgnostic. Thanks to our sponsors, Orgnostic. Fast track the insights behind your people data using Orgnostic by connecting all your HR data in one people analytics platform. Quickly uncover the insights you need to measure the success of your people initiatives. Orgnostic is the most innovative people analytics generative AI, data orchestration, and employee listening tool on the market. To learn more, book a demo at orgnostic.com slash directionally correct. Well, imagine it's like, you know, it's like the kid who, uh, you know, they're taking a test at school and they got like to look through the notes like five minutes before the test. And then they're like expected <laughs> to like extemporaneously speak about the things that they just looked at. It, it was like that. Oh man, it's like this podcast. Yeah. You know what you're <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was sort of. It's just if it was about recruiting, but yeah. Oh, there's no worse feeling than being like, I am unprepared, and they're calling me up to the stage right now. Yeah. Actually, it's like the five to ten minutes before, like you were called up the stage. You're like, this ain't, this isn't gonna go well. This is gonna be bad. This is gonna be real bad. When like people are like doubling down on stuff that's like clearly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like what? Like what? Well, like, uh, I'm not going to like poo poo on them, but like, there, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. the guy was talking about like recruiting assessments and he kept mentioning the name of this company that's just like the shittiest company. But he's like, they're amazing. They are the best. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> everyone in this room is like groaning every time you say this. There's no better assessment company. Granted, yeah. I only know one assessment company, <laughs> they're number one in my book. <laughs> exactly. Well, looks like we have Mirta here. How's Hello. it going, Mirta? Here it's, uh, How are you guys? Man. Doing good. Fantastic. Who, who's your friend on the couch? Oh, my friend on the couch is Melda. Melda has traveled multiple countries with me. She was a, a graduation present for an undergrad degree, so like a long time ago. And now, now is she's that a my giant toddler's bear? favorite. Yeah, it is a giant bear. Her name is Melda, okay. obviously. <laughs> is Melda a giant bear name? I mean, Melda is, it is now. I decided. Okay. I wasn't sure if there was a storybook for Melda the bear in like something. Melda can be belly flopped on, which is an excellent feature when you've got small children. Oh, absolutely. absolutely right. Yeah. Wish could line, line them. I know this is belated, but I did want to congratulate you on finishing your PhD up at Oxford. That was a big deal. Uh, thank well you. Done, I know that was, yeah, a few months ago, but it, it was a big deal, I guess. Absolutely. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I feel like after such a long time, it comes as a as a little bit of an underwhelming moment, to be honest. But we'll talk more about it. Why why is it underwhelming? I don't really know. I think like through your PhD, as you sort of publish things and and establish yourself in the field, I feel like that day when they hand you your diploma. I don't know. Maybe other people feel differently, but I didn't feel like it was such a huge deal. Well, you think you're done at several steps during the process, but then. No, they, they add one more thing to it. And then like you get your diploma, then like six months later, you have a dream that it was all a lie and they, they're going to take your diploma away. Right? I did have a moment a few days ago. I had to apply for a grant and I had to produce my diploma and I couldn't find it. And my husband made a, a sort of poorly placed joke of, but did you even get the diploma? And I was like, I don't really know where the piece of paper is. Um, we have since located it, but it was a stressful few hours. I'm, I'm with you. Like I have my... Do you know where yours is? No, not exactly. I have a my undergrad one still in a sealed envelope somewhere. Mm -hmm. I have a frame for my PhD diploma. Mm -hmm. I don't know where the actual diploma, diploma is. is. It, ne 
it never made it into the frame. Mine's right there. <laughs> I mean, pulls up to something. He's never going to lose his, right? Like whoever yeah. ever needs it for a grand, for an estimation, he's good. E. Not going to miss that bad boy. Well, I don't, I don't know how you do it all, Mirta. I know you're kind of in the academic world still, but you're also working at Orgnostic and doing a, a bunch of crazy stuff over there. Do you want to talk at all about your role at Orgnostic? Yeah. Um, I feel like my agnostic life is, is sort of really nicely balancing my academic life, to be honest. I don't know oh, what I'd do without nice. both. Um, at Agnostic, I lead a team of people who develop insights, which are basically sort of tidbits of knowledge that our clients might not otherwise notice because they connect various data sets that they have on the platform. Um, and so it's it's things like, you know, what are various factors, behavioral or demographic that are driving your attrition? How can you better understand who is leaving and, and why and how you can sort of help prevent the folks who you uh, don't want to leave? leaving the company. Um, and so we try to service all of that to our clients to make it easier for them to auction their data. Uh, it's been really fun to work with a, a team of data scientists with all sorts of different backgrounds because people at Orgnostic have really diverse backgrounds. Yeah. So, so, so a dumb guy question. I'm not affiliated with the Orgnostic. So how does it work? So companies can put their own data sets onto the platform and y'all will help derive these insights for them? Is that how is that we're talking I mean, about? Sort of, yeah, that, that's a, I mean, it is a good question for people who are not as familiar with Orgnostic. So it's a platform that lets you connect multiple data sets um, from various sources that have to do with your people. So things like your HRIS or your surveys or, um, or your termination data or your recruiting data. Um, and we can sort of derive, connect th those data on the back end in, in something that we call the meta model. And then we can help you understand things that you might not be able to understand from a single data set or that you might not be able to understand without sort of de-anonymizing data and, and connecting mm -hmm. it back to the end user. Um, so, it, I mean, it, for each client, it really depends on sort of what they connect, you know, like what we can tell them is, is going to depend on what they've given us, obviously. Um, but with, with many of our clients, they connect quite a few data sources and we can get to really interesting insights about their people that can help them retain those people or, or sort of move them into positions that better leverage their skills, for instance which I think in the current market um, is quite an important one. Yeah. When, and you mentioned the term insights. I know that that has like a common vernacular phrase, but I think at Orgnostic, it actually means something specific. What, what does it mean at Orgnostic? I mean, I think at Orgnostic, it's always connected to to finding something about out about your people that relates to an action that you're later going to take. So I think a lot of companies talk about insights um, when they really mean metrics. Um, and, and at Agnostic, we try to sort of move away from that and try to call things what they are. So your metrics are your metrics, and your numbers are your numbers, and your trends are your trends. But your insights are things that you're going to make a decision based on. And you might take an action for an individual employee or a group, group of employees based on finding out something about this group or about this individual person. So it's always it always drives mm. back to this, like, what do I, so what? What do I do with this? Now? Do you have any insights on Cole? <laughs> Ooh, that'd be fun. <laughs> I will report that. If we have individual insights. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. It's either a dog or my good and my bad days, you know? <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, that's good. Well, it's it's kind of funny, like, when, when you're at a startup, because, you know, Orgnostic is a startup, and you're not, re you, you have no laurels to rest on, right? <laughs> and so you're truly, whatever is being done is probably the first time it's ever being done. And you've been a part of kind of building out a product. What, what's it like building out a product and, and making it better? And how does, and I'd actually just be curious from your perspective of coming up through 
a academic context, but you've also been in the working world too. How this is different, how it's the same. What do you like about it? What do you like? What's different? You know, all that kind of stuff. I think all I can say is it is so different than anything I've done before. I've never worked at a startup before. I was big company, big academia before. And so it's it's a big change. Um, for me, it's it's mostly been for the better because I think things that have been difficult about, I used, I used to work at Facebook when it was Facebook, not Meta. Um, and then I've been in academia for a number of years now. And, and both of those were sort of a large company, large academic setting they're slow, right? Like things are hard to move. Things are hard to decide. You have a million stakeholders. Whereas a startup is is truly more agile, a, a lot more nimble decision-making, right? Um, you, you depend on your clients and your clients depend on you. And um, obviously this relationship can be a difficult one, but at Agnostic so far, I've found it to be quite a helpful um, sort of back and forth feedback loop where the clients will tell us what they need and we evaluate what are not fits with the vision of the product and we go and build it. Um, there isn't so much red tape. There isn't so much sort of decision making, not a, not layers upon layers of having to decide if this fits. We just sort of go and build it. Um, but I think obviously the hard bit about that is that it's never done. There isn't an end state, right? Like you're, you're never finished. You just sort of keep building and building and building. Um, and obviously sometimes you get sort of disparate information one client will say well we want to see x and the other client goes no that's stupid we want to see y and then you've got to really think about okay well you know how do we do what are the solutions we offer and what is our product vision truly and how do we enrich that to to satisfy as many people as possible i mean like you, you seem like you're going the reverse direction most most academics funnel themselves into a uh <laughs> external sort of company but you're a meta or facebook as it were then you go back into academia. What, what what prompted you to do this? Like, I plan to do it when I retire someday mm. or get near retirement. As most you normal people do. <laughs> you don't seem like you're anywhere near retirement. No, no, no. I've um, I've really, truly only just started. Um, uh, I think for me, the I, I've sort of always wanted to go back to grad school. I had this thinking that there are bits of the brain that I need to understand better. Yeah. And I have a good sort of, idea for how to do that and, and things that I want to do. Um, studies that I wanted to run, populations I wanted to explore, things that just seemed quite obvious to me that weren't being done and that nobody else was filling. Um, obviously, it is a weird decision, right, to go from a, a well-paid industry job in a thriving company to do a PhD um, and then go be a professor. Weird, weird career path. But I think I've been very privileged to be able to financially make that make that call. But um, well, being on a college campus is like fantastic, right? It's it's a different sort of universe. Wasn't Oxford like Hogwarts too? It was in <laughs> yeah. many ways. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, I mean, bits of, bits of <laughs> Harry Potter were actually filmed there. Um, yeah, that's what I thought. My, mm -hmm, huh. This is super fun. Uh, people always go on tours and and will report back. I only realized in my second or third year. But you're at the University of London, right? Is that right? I am now. I did my PhD at, um, at Oxford, and I've just moved onto a lectureship at University um, at University of London. It's like an assistant professorship. Yeah, so very, very junior early on. Well, congratulations on that too. Yeah, Thank you. absolutely. Yeah, that's a whole other um, beast of a of a novelty. But uh, I'm finding pockets that I really, really enjoy, and pockets that are hard that I'm hoping will get easier over time. But as every new faculty will tell you, the first year is the hardest. So I'm uh, hoping it magically gets better next summer. That's that's just what they tell you. Mm. It's not, not the truth. Or that it's the hardest until you get your first grant. And then until you get your second grant. And it just seems to never really stop. <laughs>
yeah, we'll see. I'll report back um, on how this uh, career decision in the opposite direction has panned out for me five, ten yeah. years down the road. Well, I know um, you, when you're in the academic context, you you're writing constantly. You're trying to publish. You're trying to you know kind of get mm-hmm. <laughs> probably get tenure and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I know your writing journey didn't start in academia. Oh, it started when you were younger. <laughs> Do you want to talk to us about that? So I was a weird kid. Um, I read a bizarre amount. Uh, I mean, you know, a lot of people will say, like, I read a lot. I got hit by a car when I was reading on the street when I was, like, 11 or 12 years old. <laughs> that wasn't Explain great. Wait, would... yeah. No, you got to walk us through this. this yeah, so like, like I, mean, I got hit by the a car. Library, right, like, the library that I was a member of was about three minutes from my house, and I had I'd got some books from the library, and I obviously couldn't wait until I got to my house. So I crossed the road while reading a book and then got hit by a car. You would think, really, that this happening would lead me to no longer cross the roads while reading books, but it hasn't happened. I mean, I did it again this morning. Didn't get hit by a car, but I, I did cross the road while Great success. Um, reading you my learned. Kindle. Yeah, my parents are very unhappy about this. They really <laughs> thought I'd learned my lesson, but not a... Um, and so I think that all this reading led to a lot of sort of scribbling around and writing. And then at some point when I was like 14, 15 years old, I started writing something that resembled chapters. And weirdly turned around and said to my mom I've got 300 pages of text and she went sorry what and I said well I wrote 300 pages I'm not sure if it's coherent but it's like a novel (laughs) and um she went right let me let me read it okay so that got published I mean we basically pitched it to a couple of publishing houses and it got published and uh, like what kind of novel are we talking about I mean it's like a young adults novel My, my biggest gripe with what I was reading at the time was that everything seemed to all the European literature seemed to be centered about kids with these huge problems, right? Like everyone was underage pregnant. Everyone was drinking. Everyone had abusive parents. And I was just like, that's not what the real world looks like. So I wrote a kid. That's America. (laughs) Weirdly, not my experience of America. Um, Oh, this is great. Yeah. So I wrote about a book about normal kids and it, it seemed to resonate with others too. I think a lot of other kids were like, yeah. Well, what was the title? We, we, we got to give yeah, you Yeah. What is it? Yeah. The title is The Free Fall. Um, and then there it has a subtitle, subtitle uh, it's called How We Were Growing Up. And it's basically about like six kids who, you know, finish elementary school and move in, or finish middle school, I guess, in, in American terms and, and sort of graduate middle school and move into different high schools in, in town and, are navigating the next sort of few difficult years of, of their relationships and, and sort of first friendships falling apart and falling in love for the first time, but like all the normal things, right? Like nothing very dramatic happens in all of the 300 pages. But it became popular, didn't it? It did. Yeah. It sold out, I think, two full editions. And, and some teachers cho- in Croatia, there is sort of a way for teachers to choose um, mandatory readings. It's not all sort of national curriculum. And some teachers chose to um, to assign it. And I've got, I mean, I've got a, a number of letters from kids who wrote to me over the years that have genuinely been so helpful when I when I felt, well, not great. Um, kids who wrote like, oh, this, you know, this book really resonated. I had a really fun time reading this and writing my diary entry about it. Um, so I was very pleased to be able to move them from some of the normally incredibly boring stuff that you have to read for your mandatory monthly reading into, a, yeah, like here's a 16-year-old who wrote a novel. 
by the way. So she's did you ever write now. a second book? I did not. I also didn't reread my novel um, in, well, <laughs> however long it's been since I published it. And now I cringe a little bit at the idea that my daughter's probably going to read it, you know, some number of years. Oh, I don't you know. should be proud of that. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it might be cringy. I don't know. I'll report back. I will probably read it when it's time for her to read it um, to see if there are any indecent parts that I forgot about. Hopefully not. Yeah. I feel like that's part of growing up, though, you know? That's like, true. Think... And she, yeah. I, I feel like that it, I feel like it probably was awkward in the right ways, right? If it resonated with kids about the same age. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, but that was fun. It, that feels like it was three lifetimes ago, but it really wasn't. You got another novel in you, like a sequel? <laughs> oh, I definitely don't. I don't. I, I do sometimes really regret that. I mean, Cole sort of said, like, you're doing a lot of things, and that's true, and I really enjoy all the things that I've chosen to do. But there are things that have fallen by the wayside, and, and writing is definitely one of them. I still read a ridiculous amount, as evidenced well, by reading the Kindle across the street. But, um, but I don't write that much anymore. Maybe the grand. Well, you peaked the... early, Mirta, so, you know, it's all downhill. All from down there. from there. <laughs> True. No. I should have known that. Well, like, what are your what are your research interests? Like, you know, are you doing anything cool or hip or trendy? I am. I, I really am. Uh, I think it's going to, like, lead us straight into discussion about AI. So my research is in understanding how humans, under how humans perceive faces. It's basically, like, when I meet you for the first time, how do I move from you being sort of this unfamiliar person to you being a person I know, a friend whose face I would recognize under all sorts of different circumstances? Um, and so I learn how people how people do this across the spectrum of ages, across the spectrum of neurodivergency. So people with autism, people with developmental prosopagnosia, which is um, a disorder where you're unable to perceive just faces, but otherwise are visually okay. Um, I try to figure out how kids do this. Um, and why some kids are so much worse than others. But what's sort of moved my research away from the field a little bit um, is that I've decided to lean very heavily into um, the, the visual algorithms, right? The, the, the deep neural networks that have been developing for the past 10, 15 years and have become so much better. Um, they basically outperform any human, even the best of us at the moment. And, mm. and when I first started studying them, they really didn't. Um, so my research uses a lot, of, um, a lot of AI in visual computation to try and understand both how algorithms do it differently, but also how we can leverage algorithms to move away from these neurotypical tests that we've been traditionally applying, because I think they limit our understanding of what we can um, learn. Well, can I ask about, I'm actually in the process with some other folks that are pretty well known in this space, writing something on neurodiversity. Is there anything that you've found kind of conclusively that would be interesting to know? I mean, in terms of sort of my own research, what we find is that algorithms in humans perform in fundamentally different ways, but there is some shared variance that resembles cognitive variance. That might have to do with the first few layers of a deep neural network really being instructed by the person who's constructing um, the net. And so that might be all there is, but it might also be that our computational mechanisms um, powered by our brains are logical, right? And that they are what 
computers do when they're tasked with a visual task of, say, distinguishing two faces or telling them together. Um, what we do find is that people who are neurodivergent or people who have selective visual deficits um, tend to deviate from the algorithms more. Um, and based on this, mm. their perception seems impaired. So basically, they, they judge faces as more different than the algorithms do. Um, and this seems to underpin their inability to sort of tell faces together, which is, which is mostly um, what they struggle with. Um, I don't know how it works in other spaces, but in the visual space, that seems to about sum up uh, what we know. That's that's super so. cool. Like, what what are, the, what are the future applications of this? Obviously, you know, someone's already neurodivergent; like, they can have their own sort of set of uh, perceptions, etc. Like, can this be funneled into uh, teaching kids better me methods to recognize faces or me or all <laughs> fa facial recognition for software? I don't know. I mean, uh, so both. I focus on humans, but obviously one of the one of the applications you've probably seen is if you've traveled anywhere in Europe, loads of places now have the, you know, you shove your biometric passport into a machine, scans your face in a 3D yeah. little chamber, recognizes that it's you and uh, you just have no interaction with a human border patrol agent. And part of that is really great news because border patrol agents are really not that accurate at telling faces uh, apart or together. That's partly because they're in the vast majority of cases faced with matches. So people don't ordinarily try to cross the border with a fake passport, uh, good news. But that also means that they're um, oftentimes too tolerant to difference. So basically they will see your face and your passport looking really different and they'll sort of happily wave you through. Um, and they don't have a finely tuned really mm -hmm. um, ability to, so, so machines tend to do better and they tend to pick up more uh, of these discrepancies. But my focus has been in trying to figure out what is the developmental window in which we might, we might be able to help and how do we scale that and again algorithms gotcha. come in really handy so i want to well, i'm writing a big grant at the moment to try to get some money to deploy this in schools with children who are struggling whether that's because they're prosopagnosic or have autism to try to teach them to basically be better at perceiving faces, to look at the parts of the face that are most telling. Um, and my goal is obviously not, and this is not the end game, to make them as good as a typical kid, but what they might get to, they might get to a point where they're basically good enough to be able to recognize people who matter to them. And that I think would already massively increase their quality of life, right? To be able to recognize your parents or your, your siblings or your best friends. Because oftentimes these kids find themselves quite socially excluded mostly because they just can't recognize the same kid. Um, I mean, I, I, there's one kid who sort of described it as walking into a room full of strangers every day. And that just like- That's so foreign. I mean, right, for everybody. <laughs> right? Well, yeah, not well, everybody. not for everyone. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for a lot of people, this idea that you just wouldn't be able to tell whether you've ever seen a face before. Yeah, it is quite foreign. Is, is there a way to like adjust my own facial configuration thus that i look interesting to other people that does help so children <laughs> uh -huh. children who who have autism tend to just be massively better at faces that are weird um really? for whatever reason yeah that have like a scar or a mark or or sort of a birthmark of any kind yeah i mean it's you know they lean onto a salient feature and they encode that and they barely ever make a mistake but if you look like your typical joe tough luck uh, cole uh, i think psyop face tattoos is that <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, feel, I, I don't know how much of an advantage you need to recognize somebody with a face tattoo. It stands out a lot, but yeah. That is true. Yeah. Well, I, I'm wondering, like, does this relate at all? I, I have a few directions. I, I I was curious about what you were saying, and I, you feel free to go whatever direction you That's want. That's good. <clears throat> 
One is I've, I've seen some research before on like facial recognitions and lie detection. Mm-hmm. I've seen some things before on um, what you're doing, again, kind of in the applications you were saying around neurodiversity, but maybe like other use cases as well in, in the in the kind of the real world. And then I wanted to come back to actually the thing in the um, when you're going through customs and they're using like algorithms, <clears throat> you have like statistical problems in that case where you're trying to predict very rare events. And predicting rare events is actually really difficult because you're it's it's hard enough to find data sets that have enough data points to kind of mm-hmm. balance out to make an effective algorithm. I don't know. Choose your own adventure there. Any of those you want to talk about? Yeah, actually, let's talk about that last one because this is something I think about a lot. Um, so border patrol agencies or like home offices or whatever, right, that implement these algorithms will tell you that this is not a problem because they don't use the sets that they acquire from people crossing the border in their training. So that's the, the algorithms they use are pre-trained and the fact that vast majority of people who cross the border are people who they say are who they say they are and the, the passport matches the person um, would obviously over time get an algorithm to sort of increase its tolerance to a point where it would no longer be useful. Um, and so they will tell you that right like you mm-hmm. be by nor incorporating that data they're not introducing that bias and and i suppose that might be true what they're facing with though is is a different kind of problem which you've also hinted at cole which is that it's really hard to get data sets that make it possible to sort of train these algorithms to be correct across the board and so you may have seen articles i mean there was a lot of uproar about this a few years ago when algorithms weren't that great yet um that they were really sort of bad at recognizing people of different colors. They were, they were worse uh, at recognizing women. They were always worse and continue to be worse at recognizing um, black people. So African-Americans tend to do much better on these, but sorry, much worse on these algorithms, as in they will get rejected more frequently, um, even though the person is actually who they say they are. And that obviously is not great in practice. Um, I will say as a bit of a devil's advocate that um, Humans do this too, and they do it at much higher rates than the algorithms, right? Because humans are subject to, as anyone who has ever taken psychology 101 knows, uh, a massive own race, own gender bias. So if you have mostly sort of white male officers at the border, which tends to be true, they tend to be really good at telling white men apart from each other, not so much women and not so much um, people who are not white. And so you can sort of forcibly train the algorithms to get better at these things. And we now see algorithms that get deployed at borders that tend to have really, really low mistake rates. We're talking sort of one in 6,000 pairs or something. Yeah. When we talked about this with Jackson Roach a few weeks ago, because he and I had co-written an article together that was basically about like algorithms in comparison to what, right? And if it's in comparison to how you've been doing things as a human being, then human beings are just loaded with bias. Perhaps an algorithmic solution, even though imperfect, is probably way more perfect than the human really, solution yeah. sometimes. I mean, in, in this case, we sort of empirically know that, right? We know that. Um, what I said is true about algorithms is that over time, if, if you feed them data that's mostly matches, so the person that is in front of you is mostly the person in the passport, um, algorithms would sort of slowly over time increase their tolerance. Um, humans do this really, really quickly, right? So they become sort of in, unable to pick up on, on really, really obvious mismatches really quickly. Um, and so when we have Border Patrol officers working these posts for many years on end, I mean, they basically just will wave just about everyone through. I think one statistic empirically that we have is from a paper from like 2016, I think, 
in the Switzerland, in, like in the Swiss Border Patrol um, workforce, somebody did a, a big study and they were only about 56% accurate, where 50% is is chance, right? Like you flip a coin. Um, so humans are not that much better than chance, at which point you might as well sort of hope with the Border Patrols, right? Uh, algorithms certainly do better. They're imperfect, but they certainly do better than humans. Which is incredible because when you go through border security now, when they do implement these sort of like automatic facial recognition things, the lines are so much shorter. Oh my gosh. Like it used to take like an hour just yeah. to get through customs, say in Heathrow. Yeah, yeah, now, yeah. And now you just now it's like 10 your... minutes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, one, I will say that as a, a parent of a small child, one downside of, well, not downside, one limitation of this is obviously the algorithms are not trained on any sort of children's data, right? Um, like uh, aging. Reason. <laughs> yeah, because it's just like children age in, in ways that are really, really difficult. Um, algorithms, this is something they're not great at. So they can handle up to about um, eight to 10 years of, of age, of sort of normal aging, uh, which is great because that's about how long our passports last, um, but they can't do much more. <laughs> and obviously children change in much more profound and fundamental ways. My daughter has a passport from when she was about two months old and she's about two. And then every time I cross the, the border, I, I feel like I'm smuggling. This doesn't look like you. I think anyone. How on earth <laughs> did you get her to sit still for a picture at two months old? Oh, it's no, no, no. It's much creepier. You dress yourself in a white bed sheet and then you hold her as a little ghost and you get her to take a picture against you dressed in a bed sheet. It's very terrifying. Oh my god. For a child and you. Yeah. And then this wow. is their this is their password picture for the next five years. It's great. I mean, we should well, continue this for everybody. <laughs> that should just be the way you take yeah, a password. Yeah, this is how you do yeah, it. Yeah, I mean you have to get attacked by somebody in a white sheet. Oh, what you, could go you know, wrong? If you did it, if you did it from early on enough, the kids just wouldn't question it. Kids don't <laughs> question things like these. This is a terrible segue, but um, speaking of white sheets, um, you've been a skipper of large <laughs> What's sailboats. What's going on? <clears throat> you've been a skipper of large sailboats before, which also have white a... sheets. Do you want to talk about that? I, I, feel, I feel like this was a decent, decent segue, actually, Cole. I applaud that. Um, that's true. I yeah, I got into sailing a number of years ago, and it's it's one of my like it's one of my weird favorite sports. Um, I grew up in Croatia, and and Croatia is obviously now sort of famously known as as one of the loveliest places um, you could sail on Earth. It was not known as that when I was growing up, so this was not hip when I um, got into it, um, which is both wonderful and annoying. So it's now become this like sailing heaven that people will come from all over the world to, to sail in and explore, um, which means lots more sailboats, lots of like a lots of a lot bigger market, but everything is also wildly more expensive as a result. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I sail and I ski and I find both of those activities utter and incredibly privileged um, to, to be sort of similar in, in how, how freeing they are. Um, I mean, I, I grew up in a city. I've only ever lived in large cities. I, I've never sort of lived anywhere where I was what you'd call close to nature. And I think this is the closest I get, right, to to yeah. appreciating and understanding how wild um, nature can be and and gaining a healthy, healthy fear of um, of, of how the earth works and, and how various elements of it are entirely unpredictable, um, no matter how prepared you are. Um, it, it's really lovely to get on a sailboat and just sort of say, we'll see you in seven days, bye, um, and just... Have you ever skied? Have you ever skied behind a sailboat? I've not skied behind a sailboat. I really should get on that. You can get humming. You can get humming on a sailboat. I feel probably, like you, probably 
you probably can't sail quickly enough to do that, no. right? You've got to, yeah. I've only ever seen people do it behind speedboats, and I feel like there might be a reason for why. I don't understand the physics of like the Latin sail and like crisscrossing your way across, like into the wind. You can sail into the wind. Mm -hmm. Isn't that called tacking? Yeah. Yeah, you tag left and right. I just don't understand it at all. It's beyond probably the scope of this podcast. Yeah. Uh, It is probably beyond, but very happy to chat. I don't fully get all of it either, or I don't know what that sail is called. (laughs) It's magic. I think it's the Pythagorean theorem. I think that's what it is. You know, A squared plus B squared equals C squared or something like that. Mm, that, that sounds right. You ever get on those uh, canal boats? I'm fascinated by those every time I, I go did to not. England. No. You're talking like about a, like in Vienna, like canal boats? Mm, 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 no, not, not, not a gondola. Like uh, they're like 100 feet long and there's canals all over England. Like say like uh, Camden Lock. Like that's a canal that runs through there. Sure. And they have these canal boats, like 100 feet long, and people live oh, on like them. like people live on them. I have yeah. actually been on one of those in Oxford because I had a friend, had a friend who lived on one. Yeah, uh, yeah, a Oxford. PhD student. Yeah, um, Oxford has a lot of boats where people normally go punting, which is to say pushing the bottom of, of the canal sort of away from you and hoping you don't roll over. Weird sport, quite fun if you've had a few drinks. Uh, but yeah, people live, <laughs> people live on boats. Um, this was my first sort of... A foray into that i that like that's not a thing in croatia people don't really live on boats she had such a lovely setup cole and i met punting oh did you <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's how we met did we no where were all. you punting <laughs> uh is there a lake in louisiana i don't know why <laughs> running out of steam real fast <laughs> <laughs> you would do no, some confusion matrix yeah let's try it the Confusion Matrix. Uh, all right, Mirta. Uh, we'll call this Research Roulette. How about that? So we're going to have three articles. One okay. is real and two are fake. Okay. Pretty, sim- pretty, pretty simple rules. And if you win, Cole will send you a personalized email containing a social media tile that you can post on LinkedIn. <laughs> Score. You'll get that anyway. And if I lose? If lose. It, well, we, we're not going to talk about that, but we're talking great shame. Great shame. Uh, okay, shame, 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 shame. <laughs> okay. Okay, because uh, you are in England, these are all English sort of oh, uh, articles. Okay. <laughs> so the first one, title, uh, tea time temperatures, analyzing personality traits and British tea preferences. This is from the journal Cultural Psychology from Cambridge University. Okay, article two, exploring the parallels, Jesus Christ and Harry Potter in contemporary literature. This is from the Journal of Contemporary Mythology, probably Comparative Mythology Uh, in Modern Literature uh, from the University of uh, Chang Kwong University. I get in trouble there, somewhere in Taiwan. And article three, the great British Q, patience and orderliness in public spaces. This British Journal of Social Dynamics from the London School of Economics. So we have uh, tea temperatures, tea time and temperatures, Harry Potter and Jesus Christ, and the Great British Queuing. The Great British Queue has got to be the real one. I think so. It's got to be the real one. Did you guys see the queue, the Great Queue when the Queen died? It was like nine miles. Oh, long. I did see that actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
It was like the most orderly queue. It really the, was. The longest orderly queue in history. It really was. This was, I mean, this is such a fundamental part of the British culture that I've heard people say when they leave Britain and their kids go somewhere else, they don't understand why children in other countries don't queue in the playground to go down the like, slide or whatever. Um, it is a very fundamental. So I'm going to go with that. Because we're little <laughs> monsters, that's why. <laughs> Everywhere else but in Britain where yeah. we're proper and buttoned up. <laughs> what, what, what do you mean they, they queued up for nine months? Like they just... For nine miles. Nine miles, okay. Nine that's miles. And misunderstood like, it was there. actually kilometers, you know? It wasn't miles. I think it was miles. <clears throat> no, I'm saying the nobody uses miles. In, no, in people do. No, they, they do. They use, they use yeah, miles in English. Oh, do they? I always heard it was everywhere but the U.S. No, no. England. England's weird. Like they'll use liters, but not gallons. Yeah, and kilograms. So they use kilograms, but miles. Stones. Well, occasionally stones, though. Drop a yeah. stone on your ass. Mm -hmm. I've been wanting to talk about stones. How many stone stones do you weigh? So what is a stone? Four, is 14 12 kilos? Pounds? Yeah. No, really? With 14 pounds? Oh, oh, now we got like a second game going. I thought it was 12 kilos, which would be about 24 pounds. Stones in LBs here. Let's try Google. One stone is fourteen pounds. Oh, well done. About what seven? And what's pounds? a kilo? Yeah. Now we need now a different. Two pounds, I think. Uh, how much is kilo in LBs? I mean, we're solving the real problems in the world right now. Two point. That <laughs> <laughs> we're we're finally doing the great conversion across the globe. <laughs> We're solving <laughs> massive issues. 2.2 kilos, pardon me, 2.2 pounds per kilo. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, it's very, so I, I don't have a ton of um, touch points with the British, with the NHS, the great NHS, the religion of the NHS. But when I got pregnant um, and I got into the hospital, he asked me how much I weighed at the beginning of pregnancy. And there were three options. So you could put it down in kilos, in stones, or in pounds. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a uh, cool. That encompasses Britain in, in many ways. And then you have to queue with your form. Well, did you ever actually say which article was real? I did not. I, I did. What, 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 oh. what, do you, what do you think, Cole? <clears throat> I was actually going to go with the, the the first one just because it was so boring. I was like, that's got to be true. Tea time temperature? That, that as, sounds as publishable tea. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is uh, exploring the parallels. Jesus Christ and Harry Potter in contemporary literature. Yeah. Here, let's see if I can throw it up on the screen here. And what's the journal again? Comparative so, something? Uh, it is the Journal of Comparative Mythology and Modern Literature. So in the abstract, it talks about it was a thesis and then it was turned into a book. So here's the actual book. Right. Yeah. I, I wonder if that journal is of the, the quality that you can get tenure for publishing in it or not. <laughs> But like, so like, did you dine in like, say the Harry Potter halls and this sort of stuff? Uh, I did dine in some of the Harry Potter halls. I don't think they actually, I'm not sure if they, rec oh, you're right. Actually, I think it was in Jesus College that they recorded in the Great Hall in Hogwarts, I think is in Jesus College. Um, I did once go to High Table. High Table is a very Oxford thing, very pretentious. What is that? Well, yeah, what is that? It's a high table, Cole. It's a table that's slightly like higher than like the eye. You on stilts to be at the table? No, you have to like go up a few stairs and then you sit above everyone else. 
And you have to wear your special gown. You obviously always have to wear your special gown. And then people stand up when you walk into your special, in your special gown and go to the table that's slightly above everyone else. So it's like being at the parents' table at Thanksgiving or something, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's it. Except you know there are like three hundred people mm-hmm. sat um, at the lower children's tables. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like this is, has remnants of aristocracy to it. One it, of the things. The high table is obviously American the table <laughs> where you know Dumbledore sits. That's the high table. That's physically where it is. Yeah. Okay, y- y- y'all want to hear like a crazy art project that I've I've been brewing on for like ten years. I've never actually done it, but I would love to hear it. What I want to do is record myself or friends or family or loved ones, et cetera, record like a three minute clip of them just standing from the camera, much like your baby being held up with a sheet <laughs> to, to the camera, very much like that. And just like, you know, three, five minutes, whatever. And like, they're just like sitting there doing nothing. And then uh, put that like on a, a monitor or a video wall or something like that. And you could have like all these pictures of people somewhat moving, they're blinking, they're looking at you like Harry Potter when they're walking through oh, the hallway. Oh, I like that. And yeah. it'll be like, a, and like they'll the just, fat like, just lady or whatever. And you know, yeah. just chilling there. They look normal, then like they may move a little bit. You could make a whole museum of that. That Absolutely. would actually be fascinating. Absolutely. And occasionally they've got to say password, password. Right? You're like deeper than lady. me. I don't know. No, wait, like yeah. the fat lady in Harry Potter. She just sort of shouts yeah, password at random wall. password because you have to get into the, the Gryffindor hall. I love it. The common room. I yeah. I love that. Much like the temptation of pushing a button. Do you want to do <laughs> some the, the king of segues today. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just on fire. <laughs> well, let's, let's do some nerdery really quick. You want to you wanna push that button? The nerdery. So this is uh, an article. It's actually from the summer. So <laughs> as far as Gen AI goes, it's a little bit dated, as it were. But uh, Ethan Malik talks about uh, the temptation to hit the button. So the button refers to, in Google Docs, it provides you a means to have a starter draft. So think about uh, things like letter recommendation. It's always good to have like something to build off of. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, he goes on to talk about, you know, there could be issues with quality and uh, originality and essentially lowering of writing skills by people having access to these sort of things. And uh, goes on to have, make a really interesting point about the crisis of meaning and significance of work, especially when we're talking about written documents that relate to your own thought process and um, the output of your, you know, mental abilities. So, I mean, it really has calls into question, what does work mean? And are these Gen AI sort of like good as it were? Well, I'm really glad you brought this up because again, I agree with you that there's part of the article that's pretty dated, but there's like a kind of an evergreen part of the article, which is the part that you're talking about now, which is like, what is the meaning of work in the age of AI, Mm -hmm. right? And he even cited this um, study that showed like a pre and post treatment mm-hmm. for people who got to use AI on a task and people who didn't get to use AI on the task and how they had vastly different experiences because they used AI. And the thing about it that stood out to me, and he cited like one statistic in there that I thought was fascinating. He said like 92% of their people believe that their jobs have an impact. And what if that feeling goes away? via using some of these things. And 
I don't know. I, I think that this is a fascinating discussion. I have more to say about it, but I'm curious to get your perspective. Well, I was actually, so the statistic you cite, Cole, I was actually thinking about it in the other direction. Like, what if more people say that their jobs now have meaning because they've been able to sort of outsource, if you will, yeah. the meaningless bits of it? Because that's, you know, the pre and post intervention chart I sort of interpreted to, to be that people have outsourced the bits of their jobs that aren't meaningful and don't require a mm-hmm. lot of cognitive resources. But the question I think is, is sort of the next step above that. And and we've been thinking about this a lot in academia, um, obviously, mm-hmm. because post-COVID, a lot of our assessments are online, right? Yeah. And um, traditionally in psychology and cognitive neuroscience, particularly in your undergrad, a lot of the assessments are sort of these comparative essays explain to me how this bit of the brain works compared to this bit of the brain or how this, you know, tool can measure things versus this tool or... Um, and, and, you know, frankly, when I pop some of the exam questions that I've been asking to these tools and tell them to write um, a thousand word essays, they're not great, but they're definitely passable. They're, you know, they're not fabulous, but they're pretty damn good for us drafts and yeah. it, the student. And I've been thinking a lot about sort of what is what is the line we hold? Um, what is the purpose of an education in a sort of brick and mortar institution? Um, if as I suspect, many of our students will use some sort of tool and, and we're not explicitly sort of forbidding it. Um, and so where does this become, where does it become cheating or where does it become not really using your own cognitive resources anymore versus where is it the thing that many of our students have struggled with over time, which is sort of writing that first outline. You know, I've had so many students over the years say, I really struggle to put an outline and to, to get started but once I get started it, it sort of flows smoothly so is that just another form of is is what they get out of a chat gpt or, or google or whatever is it just another form of an outline yeah I, I think we've all kind of struggled with this idea of a blank pit play page and just sitting there staring at it and be like oh gosh I don't even know where to start mm-hmm. but I mean as far as like well, do, do you have any strategies for that Scott like outside of AI like how do you get past that um, I just asked Merita, and she provides me great ideas, really. Uh, framework always. Merita's the new GPT. You know, it's Merita GPT. Gen AI is a tool, you know. It's it, it's a tool. Just like you could say the same thing about spell check or something like mm-hmm. that. Like before before that, you know, people struggled. People would call him Scott. They struggled with spelling. <laughs> well, do we know anything about that? For instance, you know, once the spell check, the spell check previously sort of underlined that the, the wriggly red line would tell you that yeah. you misspelled something, but now it just sort of corrects it for you in, in an email when you're typing, for instance. Do we know that people become worse spellers sort of as a result over the <laughs> years? Oh, yeah. I, I have muscle memory now for the wrong spellings for things. Because it, it just gets corrected. It'll autocorrect. But I mean, like back, back to the to the topic of like actually creating content, it, it's, it's a shortcut and like shortcuts don't often feel good, especially when you take away the learning and research aspect of it, right? We have to go out and like find articles. Perhaps mm-hmm. that that part is tedious. You don't necessarily want to go out and find all the articles. But if you have like an, you're outsourcing your discovery phase, as it were, hmm. how much, what, what are you really doing? And like, are we just sharing bullshit articles to each other for or bullshit text to each other so back and forth yeah, it's like you create yeah. bullshit text for somebody to not read the bullshit text well, yeah, they'll then, have their gen ai read your text mm-hmm. created by gen ai like what I mean, does I've it all been thinking mean? about this a lot because i've sort of one one of the things i've used um i've, I've leaned on gen ai recently was to help write 
um, form letters to like airlines complaining about when flights were delayed or canceled, <laughs> right? Like this seems yeah. like a great use of it. It writes a, a legally sounding, very stern letter and you sort of just edit it a little bit and send, you send it out. And they respond with something that, you know, I'm frankly pretty sure is not a human response. <laughs> and so are we just at this point for six months exchanging emails back and forth between my Jenna and I and yours? Possibly. <laughs> We That's an interesting implication. Like, <laughs> like, are we really going to have to sue everybody for everything? Because it's just going to be one AI talking to another AI and you're never going to get any outcome like unless you take them to court. The, the human just doesn't get involved at any point. Yeah. That's I, wild. In these sort of circumstances, I, I think I do these sort of like uh, form things in, in a low tech way. It's like, okay, let me see an example of a good paper or, you know, good article that you've written. And I will go essentially try and mimic it until I, you know, mold it into something more my own. Or like, yeah. how would you phrase this email? How would you blah, 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 whatever it is. No, I think that's that's perfectly fine, if not really a helpful thing. Um, the thing I think about it, kind of back to the blank page problem, right? Because that's a problem. It, it, I think everybody struggles yeah. with it in one way or another. Is, is there something gained by the struggle, right? Yes, and yes. if there's something gained by the struggle, perhaps the button is harming us in some way. But if there is nothing gained by the struggle, and because, and I mean, I've been on the conference circuit. I've been saying this a bunch lately. It's like AI is helping us automate things that I never wanted to do. I never wanted to do again, right? And that's why mm -hmm. in that kind of pre and post experiment from the article, people who used AI actually felt better about mm -hmm. it. And they felt like they could have more impact, which I think is a great, great thing. I don't want to take that away from folks, but... It, it goes back to this question is does the struggle have meaning does it imply does it um do you gain skills from it you know are you getting gumption like i don't know i love using the word gumption <laughs> but like what what is there value in the blank page problem i think the, the value is clarity of thought like it forces you <clears throat> to really critically think about what you want to say how you want to say it, how you want to structure it. The structure of it. I mean, I, yeah. I've seen this sort of time and again, this is my educator head on, but um, see this time and again, where students sort of come into their first year and, and they really, really struggle with this, right? Like it, it's nearly mm. impossible for them yeah. to organize their thoughts, to put them into, to even just sort of have an understanding of like this thought goes into this paragraph because that logically follows from my previous thought. No sort of understanding of, of what structure is useful, what your reader is doing, what that um, interaction looks like. And then by third year, you sort of see them go through this process. You teach them how to write a framework. You, you teach them how to sort of put down a bunch of bullet points and then reorganize those bullet points and reorganize them again until they're insensible paragraphs that you then sort of fill in. Um, I think it makes strong writers. I'm not sure that starting from a text that you're done editing makes strong writers. It might make strong editors um, or maybe not even, right? Like the text that gets spat out is not that bad. I, genuinely, if somebody submitted <laughs> it, I'd probably go give like a low B. I mean, they're not, you know, they're not nearly failing. They, and they, we're just starting out in this journey. We're only about a year into Gen AI. Pretty in soon the, they uh... could be acing my exams. <laughs> pretty soon there will be no exams. I mean, th that's very true, right? Like that's one of the conversations <sighs> we've been having. Yeah genuinely at the university and, and I am coordinating a, a course this spring term and I it has a sister course the students sort of choose between a clinical and, a, and an applied course and I'm teaching the applied one and I talked to the person who's teaching the clinical and we sort of said well do we want to run this assessment does this make any sense right like does it make sense to run an assessment that probably for 70% of our students is going to yeah. be some sort of modified um, gen AI submission like do we 
or do we try to run a different type of assessment or do we sort of do away with assessments altogether right like you can't yeah like how much of higher education is just inertia from what we've always done right? <laughs> i mean a, a lot right um realistically yeah. anyone who's ever worked in a higher higher education institution knows that a lot of things get done just because we've always done it this way and there is a <laughs> lot of pushback to not doing it that way a lot these um, people at their high tables he's Gosh. I mean, I mean that, that's got to be like a 17th century tradition, right? Right? <laughs> you know what I've been thinking a lot about? I don't know if you guys saw this on, on Twitter and on threads. Ashley Ruba, she's, um, she's quite well known and sort of in the psychology world for helping people think beyond academia as, as a, a default choice. And I, I've been thinking about as academia as, as a non-default choice for a long time for people who go into psychology and neuroscience PhDs, simply because it seemed obvious to me that most people aren't getting jobs in academia because there just aren't yeah, enough. Yeah. Um, but she's just done the research on NSF, sort of the past 20, 25 years of NSF data, and it, it shows some interesting trends. So since 2018, the, the default path for people getting PhDs across all disciplines um, has been leaving academia, right? And, and I think this is a sense that is often not present when you're doing a PhD. It feels like everyone sort of just stays mm -hmm. in academia in one way or the other, but that's just not true. And I wonder, I wonder, I mean, going back to the, the AI discussion, it's not just undergrads who are grappling with this. It's the graduate students as well, right? And are we doing anything? Like is academia able to in any way nimbly move forward with an understanding that most of its graduate students, most of its postdocs don't actually end up being professors. And so like the skills that they're trying to yield from, from these years they're spending in academia has, has got to somehow get modernized, right? And it's my feeling that as sort of stuck in our old ways as we are with undergrads and then the minimal movements we were able to make to modernize our education, we're doing very, very little to modernize the education of PhD yeah. students and their training. Yeah, was, was the education uh, based on a pyramid scheme? <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's not working. Well, it you depends know. on what you want to produce on the outcome, right? So like work backwards from the ultimate goal. Like if say you want to produce practitioners that can go to an organization and, mm -hmm. you know, like work with data, whatever, structure the curriculum and the, um, you know, the curriculum into a way to mold people into this sort of outcome. If you want to produce, uh, you know, researchers, that's a sort of like slightly different sort of track there. But isn't that already tricky when you think about sort of most people who are doing the educating um, are people who have chosen this path and have never tried anything else? I mean, I don't I don't say this to my own horn, but I, I do oftentimes find myself at sort of odds um, in academia. And I think yeah. partly that's because I've had this different experience um, and partly it's because I understand that most of our students are not going to end up being us yeah. one day, right? So I'm not educating them to become a professor because maybe 1% or, or probably fewer will become professors. Um, but it's, it can be sort of hard to push that with, with people who have, not because they're not willing to understand, but simply because they don't have the other experience, right? And so how do you integrate healthy use of AI and healthy criticism of generative AI with people who, you know, quite frankly, are using it very rarely and, and have very little understanding of it. It's also insane to like treat an 18 year old and like say like, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? Mm -hmm. Well, and I'll toot your own horn, Mirta, because there's too few of people like you. I mean, you're staying on the bleeding edge of multiple civilization, civilization shifting technologies. 
And I imagine amongst your peer group, it's just a lot of folks that have been in academia their whole life, right? I mean, and so for you most are, people, that you are is necessary. Yeah. yeah. And like, it's really important that there's people like you in that environment. So I'm, I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. I am too. And I think students appreciate it. Um, the hard bit is, I think, it, unless there are enough of us in the room, it's going to be really difficult to drive change in a way that I think is meaningful for the students. Well, it's like you've gone through your own employee life cycle. The, what if we talked about how to measure? <laughs> I'm, I'm just on a roll today. How to measure the employee life cycle. Um, so we, we had you on here, Mirta, you're at Orgnostic. We've got an article from Orgnostic on about how to measure the employee life cycle. And I remember back when I, I was actually evaluating the tool as a, as a potential customer, I had come across this and I found it fascinating. And so I wanted to have a chance to share uh, just this model. Um, there's a lot of really good um, stuff packed into here, and I'll put a link to this article in the show notes. But it talks about how Orgnostic does business combining how you measure things at different moments that matter in the employee lifecycle with the concept of employee lifetime value and the metrics associated with how you would quantify employee lifetime value. And I'd never seen those two things combined. And I've been a big fan of both for a long time. And I've been kicking myself ever since that I didn't come up with the idea myself. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, can you talk at all, Mirta, about like what, what role the employee lifecycle plays in, in just how we should think about employees' journeys through an organization? I mean, I think the way we've been sort of pushing it from a product side is is a starting and an ending point, right? Like you can't, I think Agnostic in many ways pushes this sort of more holistic perspective of an employee than many other tools. And, and I've talked already about how we try to think of a person as not an employee number filled out a survey, but also who is that employee in the context of their tenure, in the context of their managerial relationships, in the context of their engagement with other members of their team, right? Like what are, what are these responses on this survey? How are they meaningful in the context of other aspects of this employee's current state of mind? Um, and the employee lifecycle sort of mapping and, and tracking is, is another way of being holistic about an employee's experience, right? Their trajectory through the company. Um, one of the things we've been doing a lot with clients is trying to understand the idiosyncrasy of that, right? And that's one of my favorite parts of the job is, is sort of breaking down my own assumptions about how companies think about employee life cycle and what is important to them. Because, um, you know, I, I said I mentioned that I came from Facebook. And so I obviously came with a set of preconceived notions about what is important. These are things that were important at Facebook and for Facebook at the time when it was sort of growing really quickly. And I had an idea of here are the five metrics that should really go into measuring our recruitment success and measuring our onboarding mm -hmm. success. And then to hear other companies talk about it and, and to hear about to hear them talk about sort of things that are important to them and experiences and moments that they try to capture in their employee journey that seem to steer um, successful and unsuccessful employees in different directions has been really quite eye-opening. I mean, it's, there's so much more we could talk about um, this, but it, the fascinating bit has not been understanding what's common, but actually what differentiates different companies and, and how, how they think differently about these junctures in employee um, journeys. I think that's totally apt. And like it, whenever in doubt, like I always rely on a company's mission, vision, strategy, and that will inform the type of people that they want to recruit, mm -hmm. how they yeah. recruit them, how they reward good performance, and you know ultimately how they boot them out of the organization should it come to that. Uh, and everything can be funneled back to that, to your point, Mirita. Yeah. Uh, no, I've, I've, you know, we've had clients sort of use what you would 
on paper, consider fundamentally opposite metrics to define success. Um, and, and I won't talk exam about examples necessarily, uh, lest I sort of reveal the clients, but um, but if you looked at it on paper, you'd go, oh, well, one of these must be doing something wrong. But actually, when you have the context about what the rest of their employee um, life cycle journey looks like and how they sort of classify people into different categories and what, you know, what they call voluntary versus involuntary turnover, for instance, and how yeah. they measure performance, things start to make sense. Um, so it's been, I don't know, the, the most interesting thing to, to learn about sort of employee life cycle mapping at different companies has been this journey is truly different. Uh, and there can be answers well, that a company gives you from its mission statement that like truly work for one person and don't work for the other. And so the, the better you can align those mission statements and, and the vision and the values to what actually happens and what you measure and value uh, and what matters at your company, the sort of better the likelihood you'll get someone who's a good fit. What are the benefits of mapping yeah. the employee life cycle? Like, it's just like an open-ended question, you know? Uh, well, why would a company want to focus on this in general? It's a hot-button topic. Mm -hmm. We hear about it in various people mm -hmm. analytics circles. And yeah. it seems like a key consideration, but... Well, I, I think it's really important, but I'll, I'll take the other side of the argument here for a minute just to debate with myself. Um, I think most of the most key moments are actually at the tails of the distribution, meaning when you very first begin and when you're ending, right? And there are moments that matter in between, you know, mm -hmm. I think about like promotions or performance-based discussions or even any just kind of crucial conversation that happens. But onboarding is really, really important to setting mm -hmm. up somebody for success. And then offboarding as well in terms of knowledge management, continuity, you know, making people making sure that not just the person who's leaving has a good experience, but the people who work with that person are also doing okay because of that kind of uh, that transition that occurs. And so, I don't know that that's kind of the alternative perspective on it. Mirti, do you have any thoughts? I mean, to me, it's it's sort of an understanding of where things aren't going well. Um, I I would agree in sort of mm, principle with mm -hmm. the idea that who you recruit and how you onboard them defines the success of those people. Um, and a lot of that is in the company's hand, not, not hands, not the employee's hands, obviously. Um, but for a company to be able to have sort of an eagle's eye, eagle eyes view, bird's eye view, bird's eye view. Eagles? It all works. Eagles are, not, it all works. eagles are not involved with this metaphor, right? Bird's eagles are view. birds. I just want to be clear on this. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> bird's eye view um, of how it's sort of doing in these, you know, large sections of what an employee experience could look like um, could both help sort of understand what are their processes that are harmful that were maybe put in place with the right intentions but are not serving its purpose. But also it can help you identify, you know, like are most people doing well? What are the features of people who are not doing well at this um at this stage of their career in the, in the company? And are there things that the company can or wants to do to make that better? Um, obviously, managing the four performers out is always part of the equation. But if you don't know what you're measuring, what matters in, in keeping people, for instance, um, you're never really going to be able to, to capture what are their folks who are at risk who you wouldn't otherwise notice. That, that, you know, it's just an example. So um, I think creating those touch points, particularly for companies that have longer tenures on average, can be a really important way of understanding your workforce, its engagement, its productivity, um, its longevity. How would you describe your journey through this podcast? <laughs> are we are we slowly moving towards the offboard ramp already? Or we're, we're, we're getting towards the tail end. Yeah, it definitely peaked earlier. I mean, I totally didn't. I totally didn't understand that we had started. So I'm going to say that the onboarding was a little weak, but I think we picked it up from there. Have we started? The, 
I didn't I don't realize even that we were recording. And then all of a sudden, Cole sort of went in with the first question. And I was like, oh, okay, we're doing this, right? There was He's no gotta... magic flashlight button. <laughs> I was looking at it from an eagle's eye view. You know? Okay, so then. That's... Good. There you go. Uh, right. Well, Mirita, you're at the house. Cole, you're at the house. Uh, Gallup, is it Gallup? Yeah, the thriving podcast from Gallup uh, had this podcast, Results from the Great Work from Home Experiment. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Interesting, like very short sort of podcast, only like 10 minutes or so. But some key nuggets in there. 90% of people uh, don't want to go back to the old way of always in office. Uh, two to three days in office uh, seems to be the preference uh, kind of universally across job levels. And two to three days also seems to be the optimal level for engagement and well-being. Uh, there are four pillars that companies should focus on. One, communicating a clear philosophy and policy to employees. Uh, two, need and ability to adjust their policy as they go forward. So like teams need to be able to come in and say like two to three days isn't enough or too much, et cetera. Uh, and three, uh, managers need to be trained in how to deal with remote workers. But essentially... Uh, we're only focusing on that first pillar, uh, communicating a clear philosophy. It's really kind of fascinating uh, sort of journey we're on. It feels like the world totally changed during the mm-hmm. pandemic, and we're going to have to figure out how to deal with this, right? Or we won't. Or yeah. we won't. I think it's just... <laughs> no. I did want to give, because um, I, I believe I met him at PSYOP a few years ago, uh, Ben Weiger. I didn't get a chance to actually listen to the, the episode, but I think you, you did a pretty good job uh, summarizing it, Scott. Yeah, I, I saw somebody post earlier this week that for someone death, that didn't uh, listen to it, I thank you very much. No, I mean, it's, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> I could have told him anything. You could, yeah, yeah. I yeah. really told him anything, and he'd be like, "Yeah, great job, good summary." <laughs> but I, I saw somebody post on uh, on LinkedIn earlier this week that um, investors are actually now starting to comb through companies' um, remote work, in person, uh, and hybrid policies to look for clarity. I don't think they're actually pushing for one or the mm-hmm. other. It's just they're realizing that it can be a cause of angst and thus lower performance if companies don't have that kind of consensus amongst their workforce that I think the podcast that you mentioned was talking about. Yeah. And I thought that was fascinating because I would never thought about that before. But like, is having incoherent work from home policies or flexible work policies or whatever it may be, you know, causing your organization to perform worse? Uh, I mean, it's a symptom, perhaps, of a larger yeah. issue in places like communication to employees or just incoherent policy in general, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think it's I think it's really tricky because we're also still sort of part of this transition, right? We've seen some of the big companies flip flop on the policy too, and that's um, that's uh, obviously yeah. created some of the. I mean, Facebook being one of them. Um, created some of the angst in the market because I know that, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of people sort of moved away from these big city hubs. And so um, there is this interesting, it's not a disconnect, but tension between sort of research showing that people do benefit from time in the office and that that benefit really tends to peak at two or three days a week and that more than that doesn't tend to benefit the productivity and the, the engagement of the employee. And then the the push for a fully remote workforce or, or sort of how do we reconcile these issues and and how do we train managers and fully on managing teams that might be a mix of hybrid and in-person and fully remote? I mean, these are challenges that 
for many, I guess, hundreds of years, we've we've not really even thought about people just sort of came into the office, whether they liked it or not, whether they were productive or not. That's just what they did, right? Um, and so there is a tension now between like, do we force these people who have moved away back? Do we, um, that's, that's obviously going to generate some discontent and, and make their engagement with the workforce be lower than it was. Uh, but then who are the types of people who thrive in this fully remote environment? Um, and I think if you dig into some of this research, there are actually interesting sort of nuggets of insights about the relationships between, you know, types of employees and, and types of work they do and your tenure and your seniority and the type of setting that seems to yeah. work best for most people. Um, and, and some of the sort of most salient bits are that the junior people who are earlier, sort of closer to their college graduations tend to do worse with fully remote workforces uh, because they really don't benefit from any of this in-person interaction. And, and that benefit seems to boost their careers. Whereas people who are sort of mid-career or later tend to see less of less of that uh, loss if they don't come in. So I think it's a little bit more nuanced than, than you know, I guess a 10 minute podcast that capture, but it, it still, you like the more nuanced it is, the more complicated your policy needs to be, and that obviously makes it more difficult for it to be transparent and, and sort of easy. Oh, that's that's a, it's a really interesting point. Like so, during the pandemic, you know, past three years or so, there was a group of uh, kids coming through high school, what have you, totally remote, totally cut off from socialization. Mm -hmm. Then they went into college, and they're going to ostensibly be leaving them soon and go into a remote workforce or you know hybrid workforce do they have the skills to operate in a even a hybrid environment and uh what does that mean for the future yeah well and i think uh i mean that's a really good point scott in terms of and i wonder like how much socialization does it take to cross that chasm right like i think that's an open question yeah um one of the things i was talking to somebody about this yesterday about like the whole just COVID and then there were a whole remote work kind of debate and all the ongoing things that are going on, which I, one of the reasons why I like the title of it was it was a big natural experiment. And yeah. they were talking about from a causal inference standpoint, you're always looking for these natural experiments that happen out in the them. wild. And so we're probably going to see some excellent research come out over the next few years, just about these type of impacts and the ongoing impacts um, of what's going on. And the other thing I think about is like, what, what did this do to us as human beings? Like, what is it doing yeah. to me as a human being that I don't see people as much as I used to? Like, are my cortisol level different? Like, like I, I, I just feel like there's a physiological component to this that's being understudied. Mm -hmm. And I would love to see the answer to that as well. There's like some strong, like Desi and Ryan sort of stuff. So like need for autonomy, need for connectedness, mm -hmm. need for, uh, uh, what's the last one? Uh, mastery right. mastery whatever it is yeah. is like how does that impact especially like how, how do you manage someone in a remote environment does that rob them of their autonomy you know obviously connectedness that pretty seems pretty obvious but like yeah. what are the other implications to your point goal yeah i mean i don't know and i feel like again somebody who's going out there any phd students listening you can make a dissertation out of this easily so Very, good luck i mean Com <laughs> competence competence there you go but it also like leads us to an area. So it's it's all ambiguous right now. Lots of room for experimentation. Two to three days seems optimal right now. Are there other conditions under which we can bring people back together, which maximizes you know whatever business outcomes you're trying to do? 
I mean, because a lot of companies have been trying that. And I guess over time, we'll see if that works as well as, as we would sort of think that it might yeah. do. So is it the frequency of contact? Is it the sort of ease yeah. of contact? Does it just need to be purely social? Is it the brainstorming in person? I mean, a lot of companies have sort of been having these monthly brainstorming sessions in person as mm -hmm. opposed to a weekly two or three days that you work together and have meetings. Time set aside, you know, is it like a, a, a week that you take as a as a team every six or seven or eight weeks? Like, what is the frequency? What is the amount of mm -hmm. time that needs to be spent for the for the different types of teams to be reaching their goals, whatever those might be? And and does that, again, depend on the sort of mix of people you have within each team, the juniority, the seniority of the folks? Um, does it matter on whether those interactions are between mm -hmm. junior people or between junior and senior people? Right. I, I don't know. They're. Loads of hypotheses I could sort of pull out <laughs> yeah. to, to think that things might matter. When I'll say this for the zealots on both sides of the argument of like remote versus in person, like you would be really hard pressed to say that you should never, ever meet your colleagues in person, like yeah. ever. Like, but I also think you'd be really hard pressed to find any research that says that only working in person is like the week only way you can be more productive yeah. or more collaborative or whatever. And it's just like, like if we all can just come to terms that it's somewhere in between, then it's all just a negotiation and trade-offs rather than just being, I don't know, like just too hardcore about it. So, so many rich avenues to pursue. I, I'm really fascinated. Like, I'm perseverating what Mir just said about the youngest or most least tenured employees. You come yeah. to an organization and like, you just, it's hard to get a foothold, hard to get the boss's attention in a remote environment. And yep. there's all sorts of it. Oh Yeah. I mean, just also think about like all the tidbits of knowledge that you gained from randomly bumping into people when you first started at a company, randomly being introduced to someone that some, you know, some of your colleagues have been chatting in the kitchen and you get introduced to someone and then three weeks later, they're actually a person that you get to ask a useful question and that moves you forward, right? Like there is so much opportunity for for randomness and for, for sort of bouncing around. Tacit just knowledge. Being, yeah. Yeah. Being passed. I mean, and, and that doesn't happen. <clears throat> Um, so social learning well, too. Forget it like actually automatically. Yeah. Um, in in a remote environment, it, it certainly could happen, but it takes sort of managers very actively. We'll finish the thought on social learning, Scott, because I, I think that's an important point. Like, yeah. So, if, so it, there's one thing to be like bumped into somebody and like talk to them at the water cooler and like all that's fantastic, mm -hmm. but you can also like pay attention to how people operate, what gets rewarded, what gets punished, yeah. in a way that's just it's so difficult in a remote environment. So. I mean, it could take people longer to get onboarded because of that, right? Because you, there's no social mimicry. Like you just can't yeah. use that observational yeah. passive approach to figure out what is it that works? What is it that's important? Like how, how does the values get reflected? It's been so long since I've been in an office. I've gotten invited to a few offices over the last few months. I didn't know what to wear because I don't know what people wear anymore because I don't have that social learning aspect. <laughs> They're like, Cole, pants. Come on, dude. <laughs> Come on, man. I'm not wearing pants right now. You don't even know. That, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> anyway, uh, Mirta, you've been you've been fantastic. This has uh, been a really fun conversation, and it's been good getting to know you as well over you know the last I guess year or so that we've been connected. But I don't know. I'm just really glad that you're here and got to share you know and kind of see you part of your journey. Uh, any any final words for Mirta Scott? Mirta, you're fact absolutely fantastic. Uh, rate, rate your performance from uh, poor to excellent. <laughs> I could go with very good for opportunity for improvement. Okay, I'd... okay, that's fair. But it was Scott. It was so good to to finally meet you in person and not over you know listening to your podcast on my way to work. 
We're all coming um, over. We're gonna hang out on the couch with. Uh, oh, I forgot the bear. With name. Melda. Melda. Yeah, you're always welcome Melda. to come hang with okay. Melda. Belly flops very warmly invited. <laughs> very common name, Melda. You know, but uh, well, you've been listening to Directionally Correct, uh, People Analytics mm-hmm. Podcast with Colin Scott and Doctor or Doctor Mirta Stantic. So thank you, joining us, Mirta. Thanks. <laughs> Bye, guys. All opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott.